Hey everybody, this is Sean, and welcome to another episode of Shot by Shot, and this is our second session with the lovely Mr. Jeff Smith. So as many of you know, Jeff is the cartoonist behind Bone, but in this episode we talk a little bit more about his other major project, Rassel. So after Bone, Jeff transitioned to the sci-fi sleek noir, and he traded in the fantasy that he was so famous for, physics. And appropriately, Jeff is somewhat of an amateur expert in all things physics and Tesla and Einstein, as is our co-host Brian Stelfreeze. So we'll be talking about that, as well as Jeff's early days at his animation studio in Columbus, Ohio. So without further ado, here's Jeff. Please enjoy. So, okay, uh, I can tell you read Bone. Have you ever read uh, Rassel? Dude, okay. Because talk I didn't about know about I didn't know about Rassel until, until I was going to talk to you. And I was just like, okay, Rassel sounds like, you know, sort of screw Bone. Rassel sounds like my thing. <laughs> it, it, it does now that I've heard it. I mean, it is total uh, M theory. Uh, M stands for mystery. <laughs> Who knows? Nobody knows. <laughs> now, now, are you are you a are you a string guy or are you a supersymmetry guy? I think supersymmetry. Really? Are you string? Well, I was string until I was string until like okay. Here's where I am. Sorry, I'm a I'm a fake physicist. So <laughs> I have to hold on. I have to go back to remember what I like. M stood for membrane. Yeah, that's what that's what I remember. Yeah, the brains. And, yeah, yeah, the brains, and that's that was a theory. That's string theory, right? Yeah, yeah. that's what I like. Yeah. What was yeah, the? Other? Yeah. I mean, once once I like started getting into string theory, I was just like, okay, this is this makes perfect sense to me. I'm gonna ride this. I'm gonna I'm gonna ride or die on string theory. The new stuff about bringing membranes and strings together. That's the stuff that's like I'm getting excited. I, I don't quite understand the math on it. Well, Rassel was, you know, part noir, part parallel universes, and hard. I tried to do hard science fiction, and it was also part conspiracy theories with Tesla. Dude, dude, that's all my stuff, man. That is all. <laughs> well, read, read Rassel. In fact, I, there's a, ra- a new edition of Rassel that I want to send you. I tweaked oh, it a dude. little bit. So I, I'll, we'll, we'll figure that out later. I'll send that to you. Okay, okay. Um, well, well, before we move forward, what's your number one film noir? Uh, you're going to put me on the spot, but I'm going to have to go with my first, uh, Maltese Falcon. Maltese? I know, yeah. That's, a, that's, late, that's late in the game, man. <laughs> that was late in the game? Uh, I would yeah. have said that was the first one. Hmm? No, Matthew's Falcon, I'm... Dead the Big Sleep, and then you get into like, um, what's the one with Orson Welles? Oh, the Charlton Heston one. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't even think of the name of it. I know, I'm blanking on it. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, this sounds like your area. Weren't you just yeah, talking just about this? Touch of Evil? Yeah. Yeah, Touch of Evil. Yeah, Touch yeah. of Evil, yes. Yeah, we talked about that on our, on our first podcast because – when I was in, in college, and I went to Auburn University, which didn't really have a film program, although that's what my degree is in. Uh, but we watched The uh, Touch of Evil because it was the, at the time when it was made, it was like the longest you know, shot, single shot, and just completely amazed. Uh, but a great movie, other than the fact that Charlton Heston was playing a, a guy from you know, Mexican, 
Yeah, that's weird. That is... <laughs> Couldn't quite get away with that today, but what an amazing film. I mean, overall, yeah, yeah that was a great one. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and so, something I wanted to ask you, Jeff, you know, I'm, I'm a big, like, Steranko fan, and I'm a big Tope fan, and it wasn't until I started really digging deep into film noir that I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is the stuff that those guys were watching when they were growing up. And this yeah. is the stuff that had influence on their work. So all of the mm -hmm. stuff that's in Totes work, all of the stuff that's in Milk Kniff and Will Eisner stuff, that stuff comes from film noir because that's yeah. the stuff that they were grooving on. Whereas guys yeah. like us, I mean, we grew up in like the 70s, you know, where everything, where nothing the had Brady bunch. or anything <laughs> like that. Yeah, and, and shot composition was gone. There was no such thing as shot composition by the time we were uh, grooving on stuff. So it was kind of like- Not that, you're right, not to that extreme, not where, where like shadows sliced through somebody's head or, you know, right at their eye level or, or shadows would point dangerously at somebody's eyes or something. I loved all that stuff. And I put all that in Rassel too. Some of that stuff was getting into um, into bone as, uh, as well. Oh yeah. At that point, I was probably getting it more from Eisner and Kniff, uh, just thinking in terms of deep shadows and stuff. Uh, but it was when I was finishing bone, the second half of bone, you know, when you're, do you, you ink your own stuff, Brian? Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you're inking, I can have like a movie on uh, and listen to like the director's commentaries or behind the scenes stuff. I love Criterion films. And I wasn't even really paying attention, but I was watching all these noir films and I was especially, as I said, into The Maltese Falcon and The Big Sleep. I just, those two movies, The Big Sleep was like, I can't figure this out. There's a missing body somewhere. I can't figure out who was driving that fucking car away at the, at the first murder, who pulled away. I, then I started to like realize I want to do, when I finished Bond, I was getting towards the end. My next thing is going to be a noir because I love oh, it wow. so much. And I was watching Double Indemnity. and Double Indemnity, that's, that's my number one. I respect that because you, you almost can't watch that without your stomach exploding. <laughs> it's so like, oh, dude, <laughs> you're making many mistakes. That had an effect on me too because um, Russell makes mistakes for sex, just like that. But I, but the model for Russell was really multi-socking. His, his partner's name is Miles. He's having an affair with his partner's wife and, mm. and they're looking for a MacGuffin like the Falcon, but it's Tesla's lost journals. And they're working in, they're working dude, in the- The um, moment you said Tesla, I was in. <laughs> <laughs> dude, dude, I found, I found a, a cross, I found a, uh, an overlap between Tesla and Einstein. What? Tesla, well, I, like I said, I'm a fake physicist, but I did deep, deep research on this. I mean, I went down the rabbit hole, uh, the Philadelphia experiment, <laughs> UFOs, everything. It's all, it's all Tesla. Well, meanwhile, um, Tesla always teased at the end of his life when he was kind of already talking to birds, right? That he had, he had made a major discovery that he had discovered the everything equation. And Einstein actually uh, actually produced one. It's the, it's the thing that ties all the forces together. What's unified you know, field theory? The unified field theory. Thank you. In 1928, Einstein actually wrote a paper, and 
he said this this unifies all the forces. But in order to make the the, the equation work out, the math work out, he had to create a placeholder, which is very standard and easy to do. But the but the little placeholder represented a tiny curled up parallel universe. Ah. 1928, and of course everybody was. No. And this is pre this is pre quantum stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's yeah. I, I mean, I think of him as starting that whole quantum thing. But yes, but he then rejected it. He said, "I will not do this." But I'm like, that's that's exactly what string theory is telling us right now. Oh, that's man. it's tying the whole it. So, well, in my fictional world, I tied Tesla and Einstein's theories together using string theory. And I held it together for like five years in my brain. And then <laughs> as soon as I finished the book, I was like. <laughs> 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 so I'm, I'm trying to pull it. I'm trying to remember it. I'm trying to it. Well, the cool, the cool thing is if, if you <laughs> held it together for more than five years, then you'd be growing your fingernails, you know, sort of, and saving your pee and mason jar. That's right. <laughs> but, but Jeff, I remember the Philadelphia experiment, and I, I was, I was thinking recently of the most horrific scenes in comics, and I wouldn't expect Jeff Smith to be in there, but you put some scenes in Rassel that kept me up at night. <laughs> when you see all those bodies fused to the hull of the ship, I was like, "This is going to be another delightful Jeff Smith read." Nope. This is as hardcore yeah. as it gets. Yeah, yeah, I went hardcore, and I really had fun doing things like trying to depict the the invisible ship, because um, oh god, I found some I found some crazy fringe material that I don't know it might have changed me, but I've, I would find like books that were like published self published on you know, theories on what really happened in the Bermuda Triangle. And oh. I, I, in fact, as, as I followed the story of the Philadelphia experiment, are we, are they, are we, is this too off topic? Are we like getting I crazy? think this is the entire point of shot by shot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, thank God, because I realized that the Philadelphia experiment started, uh, there were some small scale efforts uh, at the docks near Philadelphia, but the real crazy shit that happened where they they turned on these electromagnets that they'd wrapped the ship in happened down near bermuda it's oh, tied gosh. into the bermuda triangle it's i mean tesla's oh, in every <laughs> so there's this guy found these records that i thought were credible enough that i was going to use them that um it was during world war ii some prisoners of war were being transferred from uh, Northern Africa, Casablanca, actually, and were being transferred back to the United States. And they had a they had destroyer escorts and stuff. And one of them was was the Philadelphia experiment ship. And they were past, you know, just north of Bermuda, when all of a sudden there's there's the records of this one officer who monitored incoming signals and there was like all these emergency signals and they but they couldn't find it they couldn't see anything on the horizon and like the next day things were floating by like pieces and parts and like sailors uniforms and shit and <laughs> and then like on the third night they find they they see on the horizon at night you know 
the ship that nobody knows about, like glowing. It's not where it's supposed to be. And uh, they swing around and they go see it and they pull up right beside it and it reforms. And that's supposedly when they were all in, in the bedded in the hull. So I had to figure out how do I show them pulling up beside it? And I figured that the bot, the boat is like just wired, wired, wired with electromagnetic cabling yeah. and power. The idea is that it could bend visible light and radar around away from, around a ship and it would be invisible. Well, when they turned it on, apparently it, it blipped out of existence <laughs> into a parallel universe or something or another dimension and reappeared like near the Bermuda Triangle and over here. And it did it over and over again for like five days. And when people would re, when they, when it would return, people would be like embedded in the bulkheads and cool shit like that. But um, to show the invisible ship, I figured, well, if it's wrapped all these cables, it's going to be roiling and blistering and popping with all those kind of sounds you would see in the, in the Frankenstein's laboratory, you know, early science, yeah, and electricity yeah. going pop, 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 crack, 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 and crackling the smell of ozone. But carving out a trough, you know, a 300-yard-long trough where the ship was, and the sailors see that, and then, boom, they come back. And that, that's, <laughs> that's in Rassel. It's in Rassel. It's very <laughs> dude, that's insane, man. <laughs> wow, dude. Now, um, have you, have you um, did you ever get a chance to, to read uh, Foucault's Pendulum? No. Uh -uh. Oh, dude. If you're into the conspiracy theory stuff, man, <laughs> you know, and this is like pre-Dan Brown, like, you know, sort of tying everything together. But I, w I wanted to ask you something. When you were doing the, uh, the webcomic, and I always think, I think of it as experience craft, like because you're presenting something in a certain way, you know, like I, I think if you're presenting something for the newspaper, you have to craft it a certain way. And if you're gonna do it for a comic book, because the page format is different, you have to craft that a certain way. And I also think since you're doing something for the web, because the experience of the web is different, you have to craft that a different way. Um, when you were doing Tukey for the web, did you basically try to take that into consideration? And I know you're changing it now. Did, did that have anything to do with the shift? Yeah, I, I definitely was like, okay, I'm going to try a web thing. And the web is horizontal. Yeah. So I, I wanted to do a landscape comic, for sure. One of the early inspirations was I wanted to do, I, w I was walking through the Billy Island Cartoon Library, and they had like a cart. Uh, I get to go backstage because I've known them for so long. There, there was a cart where I think they were refiling things. And there was like a, it's this huge Hal Foster original from Prince wow. Valley. And it was amazing. I think this particular one was, it was like a wedding scene or something. And there's just all these, there were so many people in, I, it must've been Prince Valiant's wedding, I guess. But it was like, uh, it was like the Fantastic Four wedding, but like times a million. Uh, the drawing was just amazing. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to like make a, I'm going to put up a comic page once a week, once every two weeks. And I want it to be like a old Sunday page, like, like Prince Valiant. And yeah, I designed it for the shape of the, the web. And then when I went to do it as a comic book, I wanted to reprint it. I was in trouble because I did, I did some good drawings in that book. And I had two choices. I could shrink the, the whole comic down and like make 
stack two of them above each other, but they would have been so small. And the other thing was to like kind of print the pages sideways. So when you read it, you would read it like a calendar. And that's what that's I opted right. for. Oh, okay. And that did not go over well. Nobody liked that. So now that went into my decision to rethink the project uh, instead of doing it as a web comic or a comic book, I'm going to do it as a graphic novel. I don't want to change the aspect ratio. I'm going to leave it. But I don't see why it couldn't be the size of, say, Frank Miller's 300, that size of a book, and just have nice, big, beautiful, large yeah. artwork. Yeah. yeah. We've been having this conversation a lot recently because the direct market, so it's always, I guess, seems to be in flux, but more so now than ever. And, and there's also creators that like, I don't even know who they are who are selling $100,000 graphic novels you know, on Kickstarter because they're building their, their audience on, online. How do you make those two things work together? I did. I found the web. I was unable to make the web make any money. I was blown away because there's guys that are doing storyboards and animation and you don't know their names. They're not household names, but they've gotten, they've gotten their web comics up and running and built a fandom there. And then mm. after they'd run it for like a year, they'll go and, and do a Kickstarter for the book. Like, all right, here's volume one. And they're making crazy money. There's a guy on my Twitter feed who just is, his name is Ben Bender. And that's his real name. That's an awesome name. He's doing a sort of a Calvin Hobbesy young Viking book. And I think he was just trying to raise like under a thousand dollars to do his first issue or something. And he's raised like $10,000. Right. Yeah. Um, wow. More power to him. I don't know. I, I don't think, Old geezers like us can do that. And it's it's under Gen X. I can't wrap my head around it. I can't stand to read the book digitally. I mean, I will I will do it, uh, but I don't enjoy it. Like it's 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 uh you know, the paper, you know, the book in my hands, the paper touching the paper with my fingers, the, you know, the smell of the ink. You know, that's the whole experience. It's not digital. But the the millennials and Generation Z, like I've got kids now that are Gen Z and they don't mind reading digital at all. It doesn't bother them. They, they grew up that way, you know, so this is a different experience, but, um, but it's well, cool. I totally, I totally agree with you, but you're an old fart. I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, twice. I am now my granddad. Yeah. It sucks. Yeah. That seems Cheers. to be part of the game is, uh, is, is figuring out exactly how to craft that experience. Um, because it, you can't just take a comic and put it on the web. It, it just, it doesn't quite work. For me, a guy that grew up, you know, I learned to read because of comics and uh, you know, been in the industry in one form or another for, you know, uh, since my adult life and uh, figure out what the new wave is going to be for COVID-19 thing. It's going to change everything because comic book stores, unfortunately, like every, you know, restaurants are never going to be the same bars. Who knows when they'll be the same. Uh, and, and unfortunately for the comic books, uh, comic book stores, there's going to be a lot of guys that don't make it. You know, a lot of stores that are just not going to survive just because of, you know, the situation we're in. And there are only like 2000 to begin with. Right. So when I first come into comics as a comic book store owner back in 93, I was at the, the end the of apex. The, no, yeah. the, that was when there was like 5,000 comic books. Oh, there were, there were seven. There were about 7,000, 7,000 7, 7, comic wow. books. And I only know this because I went to, I went from a comic book store to working for Valiant. And I was a direct sales manager, which it was basically the retailer relations guy called Fairchild. He handed me his laptop and he said, here's the retailers. And there were 7,500 stores in his database. 
it was my job to, to talk to those people with all those guys. And, uh, you know, after the, the implosion, we probably dropped in half. And a couple of years ago, uh, we were around 2,500. And I think recently from what I understand around 2000, 2200, something like that. But when you drop from 7,500 to 4,000 or 5,000 stores, you, know, you lose a lot of your profit, but it's still a viable business. So now that yeah. you, if you go from, you know, if you lose 20 to 30%, of 2000 stores and a lot of the smaller publishers, that's the profit, you know, that, that extra 20%, that's how you were keeping the lights on. So things are going to change. Um, yeah. In some way, well, we went through this, we went through this before. I mean, you're right. It was a bigger stash pile in the beginning at that time. But I, I mean, it seems like every five years comics are about to die. Um, oh, comic, well, yeah. comics. Oh, yeah. I was, and I, I was talking to two writer friends of mine the other night, and we were having this conversation. Like, you know, comics will survive. Comics aren't going anywhere. It's just the delivery method and how you make your living doing them that, that may evolve. And I, I forgive me, if, I, I can't remember if we've had this conversation in one of the podcasts before, but Jeff hasn't heard it, I guess. But the like, <laughs> the comics would be. We're kind of in that space between you know the seventies, eighties, nineties where. We had the same experience with eight tracks and cassettes and, and CDs, and then vinyl went away. But vinyl is what the true people that truly love music, they want the vinyl, they want the turntable, better experience. But there was a gap of what, maybe 10 years or so, where for 15, 20 years that nobody wanted vinyl. But now there's a thriving vinyl marketplace. And this, you know, this virus may have accelerated our window between cds and vinyl and i don't know where that is i don't know. I, I think comics will survive there will be the good retailers figure out a way to make it it's going to kind of become the bookstores maybe more like a collectible place like where you go to buy the the collectible books you know your local bookstore versus amazon i think that's kind of where we're at right now and who knows how we're going to come out but digital is going to play a part in it. one thing that was interesting jeff is is back in the day when we were talking i was interviewing you i think for playboy and the big takeaway of Bone was one of their biggest endorsers were librarians. And I still think that's around. That's still one of the big driving forces that's keeping comics going, but also helping kids uh, be introduced to the format. And then when they get a little bit older to actually spend some money on it. Direct market's going to be around. I just don't know that for the, a lot of the smaller publishers, you know, where it's going to go, who knows where this thing's going to go. Yeah. Because I don't know. I don't know what diamond's really going to do. It doesn't sound good. DC's making their move. And I don't know if DC's going to include the smaller publishers. I just don't know. No, I mean, none yeah. of us, nobody knows anything right now. We'll have to see what happens. Um, there are people talking to each other about possibilities. So <laughs> fingers crossed, you know? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Because I think oftentimes too much of a consideration is, in general, is being made towards the uh, the marketing and not enough of the consideration is being made towards just creating awesome stuff. I mean, even, even when the industry is at its worst, in fact, primarily when the industry is at its worst and all the, you know, sort of fly-by-nighters are, are drowned out, that's when you generally tend to get the awesome stuff. You know, a lot of the people that are, even with uh, with Marvel and, and DC and, and some of the smaller publishers, they're trying to produce commercial product. And and I think when the market is doing terrible, commercial products are the first ones that just get sort of drowned out in the, in the drought. 
and the good stuff because the people who are passionate don't even care about making money. What you're saying is make art, not product. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and the thing that I think is, is really cool is making bone was the most foolish thing you could have done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was like the worst decision that you could have possibly made at the time I know, you made it. I know, and my wife, my wife backed me up. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. I mean, we get bone, we get the Dark Knight Returns, we get like just, you know, even Watchmen, we get these books when the industry is at its worst. To a certain extent, it's just like, oh, okay, you know, yeah, it's bad. That's when the diehards, that's when the people that want to be here not for the money, but want to be here because comics they have is to be. the best way that they can express themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when you don't have the the focus groups and you know the we got to hit this certain demo, and you can't tell that story because it's not going to appeal to you know this age group. That's when you get into trouble. What we saw, I guess, that, that created the boom. I really don't know, but yeah, I, I do know that the, the best stuff you ever see is when a creator gets to do what he wants or she wants and it's it's their story and it's personal and finding somebody that, that can help get that story told is what's important and people that are going to be working in comics next year are going to be people that really want to be working in comics that's my yeah that's, that's the cool thing and even even jeff you make you making doing bone would not have been successful for that to be successful and then for you to immediately follow that up with you know what i'm going to do something that's almost the complete opposite of bone you know, it's just like that's that's totally cool, and that and and that I I think that speaks to your passion. Thanks, man. Yeah, I mean that. I think your rule of thumb here is exactly right. I mean, it goes back to when comics almost went in the toilet in the late fifties and early sixties, when Lee and Kirby just went, "What the fuck? Let's just do whatever the hell we want. Let's just do this. Let's let's yeah. make up." Let's make up crazy shit. Let's make monsters be superheroes. That's more fun to draw. Yeah, and, and Neil Adams, I guess, I, what was it, the, the 70s when they gave him X-Men because nobody cared. You know, nobody, it, yeah. it was a book they were going to cancel, so they said, do whatever you want, and suddenly it's a popular book again, uh, or it became a popular book because of what he was you know, doing at those days. And um, Yeah, I mean, you have creator freedom. Uh, yeah, that's that's always, the, the, in, at the end of the day, the most important thing. And, uh, you know, I, admire the hell out of you for being able to did you you own or run a uh, the animation studio i don't remember the the full story but like you left a really good job to do you know, to draw bone which is uh, it, it was it was getting to be a really good job i mean we we i had like three buddies from college that we were all into animation and in comic books and we like comic strips and we we were all into animation and we met and one of us was kind of like really into animation and had keys to the closet where there was an animation cabinet, the big animation oh, wow. stand, which back then was, it was an early computer run uh, computer uh, camera stand, but it was a kind of computer that like only had like, looked like on the, the ship in, in alien, you know, a green <laughs> triangle and, you know, <laughs> that's how you had to like, go. that's how you had to tell it how to zoom in and, shit um but uh yeah we, we we did it for like eight years and over the course of eight years we learned we learned the craft by reading books um and we got good enough that by the end 
we were working on big chunks of Hollywood movies. Like there was a big boom in Hollywood in the late eighties with, you know, Disney started it with little mermaid and all that stuff. But any movie that wasn't Disney would need to outsource big chunks. Like, uh, I worked on Bebe's kids. Uh, I worked, that was a, Hey, 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 don't, that was a good movie. I no, I'm, that's why I'm crap. Uh, yeah, that was a good movie. I Jeff, like we movie. don't and, die, and, we and, multiply. And, and cartoon, <laughs> <laughs> cartoon, I mean, yeah, Character Builders was the name of our company. And we did, actually, I watched the movie recently, and I couldn't remember exactly which scenes I drew. I couldn't remember. But because it was like 40 years ago. Because you're years old. Ago. <laughs> because I am, because I'm an old fart. Cheers. But, um, <laughs> yes, cheers. But, um we did do, we worked on the scene where they're in the bathroom in the, in the fantasy park where they're doing the dozens and your mom was so dumb when they told her there was chili outside, she went and got a bowl. Uh, <laughs> we worked on that scene. Oh, wow. and I, I'm still proud of that. I'm so proud of that. I mean, we didn't write it. We just animated it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then I, and then around that time, we were really, were starting to like get big, big gigs. And um, we got uh, Space Jam. Oh, and my dude. partner, my partner, uh, Jim Cameron, was made the animation director of Space Jam. Wow. And that was the moment I said, if I'm going to leave and do my book, this is it. Because everybody's okay. There's a lot of money rolling in here. And they won't hate me. And we can be friends. And I can go do my, my comic book. And I'd already started it. I'd already done like two issues three issues of bone at that point and I, and I, I i broke out i rolled out and i did it vijaya backed me up she made me write a business plan and we covered our asses as good as we could thank god it, it, it worked out all right and then um my my partners and my my employees they all they designed a lot of all the monsters the the monsters in uh, space jam they designed all those they they wow. those design stuff and they were do he was directing for about three months when the main director of a live action, I can't remember what his name was. He was some hotshot advertising director who had done a Michael Jordan ad. And he had no idea who the Looney Tunes characters were. Like he wanted, uh, you know, the coyote to cut, sneak up behind the Roadrunner and scare him. It's like, no, 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 that does not happen. Whoa. <laughs> uh, yeah, whoa. Jeez. I mean, even in the, the whole premise was basically Bugs Bunny would not go looking for help from anybody. Bugs can handle it. So the whole premise was not quite correct. They could have found a way to do that. Well, my buddy who was the animation director kept trying to tell this guy how, to, how it should work. And finally, they just had this huge explosion. And I guess he's, this guy is one of those Hollywood screamers. And he fired my pal. He still worked on the movie. He finished the movie. But they got somebody else to be the animation director. But he did all the initial groundwork. Oh, wow. Wow. That's, in, that's insane, man. Well, yeah, uh, it's fun. So this was like, what, 91 when you started Bone? I started Bone in 91. I don't remember exactly when. Baby's Kids came out in 93. Because I, I started Bone in 91. And I worked on... <laughs> Rover Dangerfield <laughs> and Bay <Bebe's> Kids. 
Well, most wow. of what I worked on was was advertisements, and I, I, that's soul sucking work. I hated that. Yeah. I was like, I got to get out of here as soon as I can. I got to do my. Uh, dude, I got to right do my comedy here, man. <laughs> yeah, right here. I I I, uh, I worked in advertising myself, and uh, and man, it's just like you just have to surrender your soul. Yeah, <laughs> it's not good. The changes, editors sometimes ask for stupid changes, but the changes that advertising people ask for is just completely ridiculous. Yeah, they don't know what they're talking about at all or what it would take to change what they're talking about, which is not an important change. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) 100%. So this is probably a good time uh, because we've had you a long time. I don't know how long (laughs) you'll stick with us, but... I have a funny Jeff Smith story. It's funny. It's funny. Uh, hold on. This, is a, this is a good time to uh, replenish. Yeah. Let <laughs> nice. me pull my bottle of the Taylor Garrett, which I am a big fan. And I don't know if you, you are a big it, fan. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd, I'd started mine a couple of days ago. <laughs> yeah, I started mine two hours ago. <laughs> I'm doing exactly what I said I wouldn't, which was uh, continue to drink the whole time. So, You're running with the big dogs now. <laughs> <laughs> So when, uh, when I was in college, I was getting ready to graduate and I wanted to go to film school, but back in, this was in 92, 93 ish. I wasn't getting in USC cause I didn't have the grades and there weren't that many great, uh, film schools around. And so I opened up a comic book store. It was, it was a great idea at the time. Uh, comics were booming. There was no good comic store in my, in my college town. And, uh, I, that's how I discovered bone. This was like in May of 93. And the first time I did my, uh, Capital City order pack, and I saw the advertisement for Bone. And maybe it was, you'll have to tell me, it was probably like issue five, six, seven, something like that. Yeah, it was like four or five, which is five. when yeah. it really was, it's really when it was starting to ignite a little bit. Yeah, so I, I saw the ad and I said, you know, this looks really cool because I was, my comic shop was going to be next door to a grocery store. And I'm like, there's going to be a lot of kids coming in and, um, we'll give this a shot. So I ordered some, some copies of bone and that's the first time I'd ever seen it. Uh, so I read the first issue when it came in because I wanted to be able to recommend it to, you know, if people came in, I wanted to, I, I tried to read all the, the books that I wasn't familiar with, at least glance through them, but I, I fell in love with it. And so then I started looking for the early issues. I want to know what the hell is going on. And I ended up through some horse trading. I don't remember the exact story, but I got a copy of bone number one, first print, which, you know, wow. I, yeah. And um, so a few months later, we're already on like seventh print at that point yeah. in 93 or 94. <laughs> so a couple of months later, uh, maybe six months, I don't remember, but you, back in those days, it was, for people who don't know, there were multiple distributors back when the industry was thriving and there wasn't just one. 17. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. 17 distributors, including Comics Hawaii. Wow. That's the place I wanted to work at and I didn't know it existed. But so I was with Capital City and they were having the expo, you know, the, the retailer show. Right. The only retailers would go. And I looked at the list and I saw that you were going to be there. And I had. That was the them. first one I went to. Is that 93? It was it was either 93. It was so I opened up in May 93. I can't remember the exact timeline, but it was within the it was either the 93 or the 93. Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember right now either. But that was one it was of in the St. Louis. first. St. Louis is the only time I ever went to St. Louis. Uh, no, that was the second. That was my second year. My first show was in, I think, Wisconsin or Minnesota. Where were they? 
this yeah i don't know because th- they're this, in wisconsin i think it Capital was the first Station. one that i had gotten an invitation to and i was like oh wow this is a, a cool deal right so i made my my hotel reservation and got my plane booked and went up to but i had i saw you were on the list so uh i'm gonna show you this this is the bone hey, and the red logo oh it's signed look at that yeah look if you can't see it but because i, I can't it's I'm, got the silver pen silver the pen red so, and silver pen and i that we I, all used to like we were like signing back in the days when image happened and the self-publishing movement happened and we would like have like literally hundreds of people in a line and you're just signing as fast as you can with these damn silver pens and going, yeah, man. <laughs> so, so because like I'm a collector of, like I collect the comics, but I don't collect, like I don't CGC stuff. So I had this bone number one and I, I went up, I wanted you to sign it. And I said, look, I'm never going to sell this. And uh, so would you make it out to me? And so you wrote to Kevin and you drew a, you know, a, a sketch on it and signed it. And I, I spell my name K E V E N. So like, there's no other Kevin in the world that's going to have this book, right? Wait, wait, and, did I spell it wrong? No, you spelled it right. So I told you, oh, like, okay. hey, make it out to me, <laughs> spell it out. And so I was telling my wife, I'm like, oh, and, and I've, got a, I've got a daughter now who's 16, my oldest. I've got three kids, but my oldest is 16. She's an avid reader. And so maybe like five years ago, I introduced her to Bone. I mean, she doesn't care about comics at all. But I introduced her to Bone, and she loved it. But I was telling my wife about it. That, that I was like, hey, I'm gonna, we're going to have Jeff Smith on the, um, the podcast and, you know, I've got this, this original number one with one of my favorite comics ever. And he signed it. So she said, well, like, is it worth a lot of money? I'm like, oh, I'm sure it is. Like, you know, it's got to be worth, you know, a thousand dollars or something. Yeah. I got online and looked and this first print sells anywhere from like five to $9,000. And because, because my name's on it, I'm sure it's completely worthless. <laughs> <laughs> So then I get a lecture. You could have paid for our, you know, one of our kids' first years of college. <laughs> but because your dumb ass put the name on it, your name is on it. And now it's it's like that stupid kid that used to write his name in all his books. That's there, you. Was a, there was a guy who, uh, in the 90s, was trying to get me to come to his show. It was somewhere in New York. And I was like, well, all right. I, I, I'd like, you know, I'd like to go to new york that's kind of fun i like i like the city uh but then he starts goes into this pitch about how he he's like so you got any uh you got any of those pages from um uh bone number one around and i are like well yeah he goes well what do you, you want to just what do you want to do with them you want to sell them you want to give them to me and he goes you didn't sign them did them yeah do you have any number ones did you sign them I'm like what are you talking about he goes i go yeah i probably was i've signed them i don't know and he goes um well they're they're worthless they're worth less he goes then he made a big deal of a i don't mean they're worthless i mean they're worth less if you sign them if you sign them they're worth less not worthless they have this real thick accent i I never forgot that that (laughs) (laughs) night but he was trying to explain to me that i should give him these pages so that he could auction them off to raise my control fireman or something wow guys this was fun thank you so much jeff you've been wonderful and i hope everyone's having a good time maybe not a great tomorrow morning but that's okay i had a i had a very good time it was really nice talking to all you guys brian sometime we got okay 
afterwards i'm gonna have sean hook us up so i can send you some books oh dude dude definitely man <laughs> i've got some stuff to send your way as well man that sounds great that sounds great it's awesome seeing you we didn't even get to talk about it. i'm such a fan of your action scenes man because it's really important when you can make action happen no sound i mean just with no description or word i mean you do it you make you go panel to panel things move and they happen and they blow up and it's awesome oh, we'll, we'll have that conversation man we'll definitely have okay. that conversation okay we definitely it seems like that. we're grooving on way too many of the same things man i know i know i want to grab brian and we need to come up to the uh the show in ohio we kind of don't know what's going on right now yeah well well we're gonna do something will happen this year i don't know exactly what but we'll be back. We'll be back next year. It's a it's a really good show. It's popular, and Brian, I would love to invite you to that. Oh, man, very take, much take me on. I, I'll go if I get to go on that tour, and I bring my watercolors with me, man. <laughs> and, and, you know what? And we'll and we'll film you and me looking at like Milton Keynes Sunday pages. What oh, the fuck? What? Yeah. How did he do that? I didn't even know what that looked like. Oh, man. <laughs> man, you you had me at hello. Man, I, I one, made it through the whole show without cursing. And at the end, I lost it. I'm sorry. Like I always do. I'm totally riding Brian's coattails. I'm coming up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. We're 20. What year is this? 2021 for 2021? sure. 2021? We'll talk. We'll talk. Yeah. All, right. All, right. all right. Let's see if we can walk it in. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful night.